0: I want to turn to Faraz for a moment and ask you a personal question. Faraz, do you write a lot of JavaScript?
1: Yeah, I actually start by installing a minimum of 1,000 npm packages <laughs> before I begin. <laughs> right? Okay.
0: So, how would you react if someone said you need to write less JavaScript?
1: Honestly, like jokes aside, I actually think that in general, I try to reduce the amount of JavaScript I write because more code is more things that can go wrong. It's more more potential bugs. It's more um, you know fragility in the system. So, I'm actually like, all for hearing out this approach and giving it a fair chance.
2: Big thanks to our partners, Linode, Fastly, and LaunchDarkly. We love Linode. They keep it fast and simple. Check them out at linode.com changelog. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. And get your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly. Get a demo at LaunchDarkly.com. This episode is brought to you by our friends at O'Reilly. Many of you know O'Reilly for their animal tech books and their conferences, but you may not know they have an online learning platform as well. The platform has all their books, all their videos, and all their conference talks. Plus, you can learn by doing with live online training courses and virtual conferences, certification practice exams and interactive sandboxes and scenarios to practice coding alongside what you're learning. They cover a ton of technology topics, machine learning, AI, programming languages, DevOps, data science, cloud, containers, security and even soft skills like business management and presentation skills. You name it. It is all in there. If you need to keep your team or yourself up to speed on their tech skills, then check out O'Reilly's online learning platform. Learn more and keep your team skills sharp at O'Reilly.com changelog. Again, O'Reilly.com changelog.
0: this is js party your weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web if you haven't joined the js party community yet what are you waiting for it's a fun and welcoming place where you can discuss web dev ask questions get notified of live shows and help make the podcast even more awesome just head to jsparty.fm slash community and sign up today okay let's get into it hey it's party time y'all everybody out there. I am Jared, your internet friend, and I am here for a JS party. Excited to have Ross back on the show. What's up, Farras?
1: How's it going, Jared? It's
0: going pretty well. And we also have a special guest, Carson from Big Sky Software. What's up, Carson?
3: How's it going, guys?
0: Excited to be here to talk about HTMX and Hyperscript. And uh, let me set the stage because I feel like there is a stage to be set in this case. So there's kind of this... I don't know if it's a bifurcation, there's kind of two extremes of where people think web development is heading. One's kind of like the old way made new, the other way is kind of the brand new way. And we've had a couple of shows on the changelog just this year that have represented both sides. So back on the first episode of the changelog of the year uh, on a show called What the Web Could Be in 2021 and Beyond, Amel and myself were joined by uh, Vercel CEO Guillermo Rauch to talk about where the web is headed and the conversation there is very much focused around Jamstack, pre-rendering everything, uh, computing on the edge, those kinds of concepts. And then the most recent episode of the changelog was completely opposite. It was called, The Future of the Web is HTML Over the Wire. And that is episode 435. And that's more of a server-side approach. Hey, let's push more to the server, let's send HTML down the wire, and let's simplify and do things that way. So we have kind of a Jamstack, advocation going on and then we have kind of like server-side rendering html less javascript less things on the other side so that leads us to this show right here in fact we were asked to do this show by a fellow by the name of rajashiger Chandran, who very much is interested in html over the wire and he thinks that htmx is the way to go Hence Carson. So what uh, Roger Shager said was HTML over the wire is the future of web development and HTMX is the only library that's doing it right because it's language and framework agnostic, which means you can use it with any server-side platform like Rails, PHP, Phoenix, et cetera. So that's his take. And he asked to have Carson on the show and talk about it. So here you are, Carson, and here's HTMX. And one of the things you told us in the chat, Carson, is that you're here to tell us we should be writing less JavaScript. So
3: (laughs) go ahead, let us have
0: it. Why should we write less JavaScript?
3: I know. I know. So I have to ask your listeners and the viewers to just suspend disbelief for a little bit or uh, you know, give the other side a hear- a fair hearing here. And I don't want to present HTMX as the, the way that all future web development should be done. Uh, it's just, it's not that. But I do think that it's a reasonable uh, approach for a lot of websites that are being built today, um, often with much more complex technology. I agree with your listener's comment that I mean, obviously, I think HTMX is the right way to do this sort of development with HTML over the wire. HTMX is not based on web sockets, which uh, Hotwire, which is put out by 37Signals and DHH. And uh, those people, and that's obviously, you know, they have a huge amount of reach. And so I think they're a big driver of the conversations that we're having right now around this. But their approach has always been... Tightly integrated with a backend. So backend needs to be more, needs to understand what's going on. So with WebSockets or um, in the case, turbolinks an earlier sort of rendition of this idea, the backend had to understand an awful lot about exactly how TurboLinks was working. Not a ton, but enough. So I came at this problem from a slightly different perspective, which was that what we need to do rather than coming up with some integrated back end front-end solution. Um, and there's a, b- a bunch of these live wires, another example is think about HTML and think about removing the limitations that HTML has had imposed on it and see if we can get enough expressiveness, UX expressiveness out of plain HTML just by removing those constraints. That's the direction that HTMX is coming from. It's backend agnostic, so it works with anything. Found a lot of people on Django, for example, um, which has traditionally been underserved by front-end libraries. Uh, also, Go and some of these smaller languages yeah. uh, that have embraced HTML because of that agnosticism. Yeah. And this idea that we're improving HTML, we're not trying to give you a total solution for, uh, for your system.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's worth noting that when I talk about these two directions, you have kind of these two extremes of just like we should go that way, we should go this way. Most of us don't live on either one of those extremes, right? So right. most applications are hybrids or they've tried this approach, they try that approach. I'm not so I'm not totally sold. So you have kind of like the hard push in one direction, kind of a hard push in the other direction. Some of them have commercial reasoning behind them, some of them have maybe nostalgic reasoning behind them, but so we all have our reasons. And so right. we're not here to say like one true way, because there are no one true ways. We're 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 here to talk about the concepts, the tooling and help people become more informed about, you know, how they should write their next web app or what they should try next to learn when it comes to staying relevant and staying productive. Now, I want to turn to Firas for a moment and ask you a personal question. Firas, do you write a lot of JavaScript?
1: Yeah, I actually start by installing a minimum of one thousand npm packages <laughs> before I begin. <laughs> <right>? Okay, so
0: <laughs> how would you react if someone said you need to write less JavaScript for us?
1: Honestly, like jokes aside, I actually think that in general, I try to reduce the amount of JavaScript I write because more code is more things that can go wrong. It's more more potential bugs. It's more um, you know fragility in the system. So I'm actually like all for hearing out this approach and giving it. Uh, A fair chance.
0: (laughs) Nice. So let's describe HTMX. This is Carson's take on web app development in the front end, at least, right? Because it's back end agnostic. So this is not a full stack concept. It's a JS interaction replacement or tool. Go ahead. Yeah. What is HTMX for those listening? We've been talking about it, but
3: so. HTMX is a dependency free library. Um, it's about 10K now. I wanted to keep it under 10K, but I couldn't do it, unfortunately. And you can include it via CDN. You don't need to have a, a build step to include it if you don't want to. And what it does is it gives you attributes that allow you to specify interactions with a back end server over Ajax or SSE or WebSockets if you want to. There's not the focus on WebSockets that you get in some other frameworks. It's mainly focused on Ajax just because that works and it's easy enough to figure out. So an example of this would be if you had a button, um, you could put ajax post on it and give that hx post attribute a URL, for example, clicked and when that button is clicked an ajax request will be issued to that url and then the response from that is expected to be an html response and that response can then be swapped into the dom using other attributes if you don't specify anything by default it swaps it into the inner html of the button but you can say Uh, For example, HX swap equals outer HTML or append, append inside. You know, there's a bunch of different options for these attributes, which are, I tried to base them on the standard options in JavaScript or in the DOM uh, API were already out there. But you could also target another element. So a very common thing is to have a button that targets some outer div, right? Cause it's gonna do some action and then refresh a bunch of state on the server that all needs to get re-rendered. And so in that case, you might use hx target equals the ID outer div, you know? And then on that outer div, you would put an ID outer div on it or whatever, main, whatever you wanna call it. And so it just gives you these tools that allow you to issue Ajax requests, get HTML back and then swap that content into the uh, into the DOM in some way. And you do it all declaratively. There is a, a JavaScript API, but it's not a focus of the library. And I think motivationally the way to think about it, again, I, I'm coming from this perspective of let's improve HTML. The idea is why should only anchors and forms be able to issue HTTP requests? And why should only click and submit drive those requests? That's not the world that we live in anymore. Why should only get be available and get and post be available in forms, right? Why should you have to replace the entire screen uh, when you do these interactions? And so HTMX is trying to remove those limitations, increase the expressivity of HTML as a hypertext and uh from you know with that see how far we can push this from a ux perspective
1: Uh that's really cool it's like sort of like you're saving the developer all the boilerplate that they would otherwise have to write to attach an event listener onto a button and then send a fetch to the server and then you know in the response you have to write you know code to like change the dom you're sort of just saying like these are the types of changes that most people are going to want to make to the DOM and these are the types of requests they're going to want to send and we'll just kind of make it really easy to do those with like HTML attributes. Is that kind of a good idea?
3: Yeah, that's right. The idea if you, you know, philosophically is to stay within the original model of the web. We Maybe we'll talk about REST and HATEOS uh, later on in the, in the show, but there's this original model for the web where there were HTML TP requests going out and we were returning content and rendering it. And so HTMX is an attempt to move back to that model for many websites. And it turns out you can actually do a fair amount with that model, um, much more than you might expect at first glance. There are some examples that we can talk about. Uh, a bit later, if you'd like, that I think show off just how yeah. much you can accomplish with this simpler model.
0: So it's interesting, and I agree with Feroz, that you are moving in a lot of the boilerplate, a lot of the mistakes that can be made, and you are, you're doing less code that way. You're making HTML, you're making declarative functionality possible in HTML that wasn't previously possible. Now, before the show, we were talking about beards and uh, your gray beard there. And, and Frost has a beard. It's not quite gray yet. And I like to keep it nice and clean. But if I let it go, I'd have some gray in my beard as well. I've been around for a while. And I've written a lot of that style of code. It reminds me of the old you know, on-click handlers where you throw a function on your on-click and you, and you do it. It just takes away a lot of the junk that you would have to do to get that done. I found over time doing a lot of websites that way is it sprawls. You know, you have kind of function sprawling, you have event handler sprawling, and there's not much structure beyond the HTML tree structure. You have duplication and, and stuff like that. So does HTMX offer anything to help with those particular problems of scale? Think of scale in terms of not like number of users, but like breadth of features on a website.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's a problem. You know, this is a problem with like the old jQuery approach where you would end up with a mess of, Event handlers Um, and part of that, I think, revolved around the way jQuery was laid out. uh, the The idea of a separation of concerns, where your event handlers lived somewhere else, and your HTML was over here, and I I think that was a mistake can talk about why I think that was a mistake in a little bit. And so that made these applications very complex to understand. So I think that was part of it. And I also think that if you focus in and you can make this mistake with HTMX, if you focus too much on micro interactions and you have just really gnarly dependencies and you don't think of it more as, I'm just going to refresh this whole div and that's okay. I'm gonna let this, I'm gonna tell the server I want a state change, and then I'm gonna take everything that was rendered on the server back and re-render this particular part of the UI. And if you do that, then on the server side, you can uh, factor your templates out correctly and have a reasonably manageable backend Yes, it's possible to write a snake's nest massive code in HTMX, but if you're doing it right, you should have well-factored backend templates and a reasonable URL hierarchy against which you can issue these requests and re-render what is necessary. So I think it pushes that factoring to the backend So you have to properly factor on the back end. There's no doubt about that. But you can do that. You know, that's an achievable engineering goal for most people. And then the question becomes is that good enough for what you're trying to achieve from a UX standpoint? And maybe it isn't, right? If you're doing a a 3D game, no, it's not the right thing. But it might be the right thing for your settings page, right? Maybe you don't want all the insanity that's necessary to maintain all that client-side state in your 3D game on your settings page and so your settings page might be more amenable to this style of programming and uh htmx is uh, because it's a front-end only library it it doesn't require very much on the back end of you Um, it's easy enough to just sprinkle it in where you want Um, and that's another thing that i would say about htmx is i would start in any web app i was building with just a dumb you know, I would use Rails or whatever was available, just a dumb web app, a web 1.0 style application. And then I would look in my app where the most value could be added to the application with fancier UX and trying to achieve that with HTMX. And if it didn't get over the hump, then maybe I'd look at another library to help Mm -hmm. me out. So I would look at it more incrementally and I think you can, you know, while there's certainly the danger uh, that you ran into, you know, previously of just having a snake's nest of callbacks and so forth, properly factored back end templates, it can be just as clean as a properly factored front end library.
0: Right. Yeah. I think a lot of us run into YAGNI problems because it is hard to know what you're going to need, you know? Sure. And a lot of the decisions that we make is like, well, I don't know where this application is going to end up. Right. And so I'm going to pick the most powerful thing. Maybe right. I'll pick an ember because this is, might become an ambitious web application, right? It's not ambitious right. right now, but I don't know what my desires will be in 2 years or my clients or whatever it is. Right. And so we pick, you know, the biggest hammer in in the toolbox first just cuz we're not sure. Yeah. But oftentimes you realize over time like actually my web app is not all that ambitious after right. all. You know, like a lot of websites they have let's just call them humble needs in terms of the, those kind of things. Right. And so we end up with a power tool, and maybe all you needed was like a little skill saw or something like that. Right. Maybe that is a power tool. I don't know tools very well. Okay. But you know what I'm saying like I like the sprinkled in approach, kind of the incremental approach of starting simple, kind of even mm-hmm. going to Ferrauss's, you know, philosophy. There less code, less things, less features, keep it simple. Yep. as little as possible to accomplish what you know you need today because you're not guaranteed tomorrow. And I think a lot of our technical debt and our huge overhead and our spaghetti is because we have like big solutions to small problems, just in case we have a big problem later.
3: One thing that I've noticed in the tech industry, first of all, you can't blame people for it. If you go and you look at job postings now, it's all React, right? Like, yeah, someone came to me and said, what should I learn? HTMX or React. My first question to them would be, well, are you trying to get a job or do you have a job that you want to accomplish something? And do you have enough chops and enough cred at that job to do things a different way? All right. And if they were just looking for a job, you gotta learn React. That's the re- Nobody ever got fired for learning React, right? <laughs> in our industry in general, we, you know, what's the new thing? What's the new thing? So these, you know, approaches like HTMX, which are maybe based on slightly older concepts. It doesn't have as much sizzle, maybe, as uh, some of the newer stuff. Mm-hmm. That's one reason why I think that there's a not necessarily a technical advantage, but a marketing advantage for Hotwire, because it's using WebSockets and Web Socket sockets are exotic and they have whereas to me, you know, the majority of web, web interactions don't need to be over web sockets and Uh, We can just use Ajax. Ajax works great. Um, But now this is, you know, not as cool of a library because it doesn't feature WebSockets quite as prominently. It's easier to set up, easier to use, but doesn't necessarily market as well, which is fine. I've kind of, I've made my peace with (laughs) what it's going to end up being.
1: (laughs) It is what it is. Sometimes it seems like the cost of using the cool stuff is that it's like the code that you write with the cool stuff is almost deprecated as soon as you write it. Yeah. I feel like, you know, you can build really cool stuff with React and with that whole ecosystem. You know, I mean, I'm building a site in Next.js right now and it gives me a lot of cool stuff out of the box and and for the right kind of app, it's it's wonderful. But a, a lot of what I'm, you know, what you end up having to use in that whole ecosystem is these modules that kind of are changing really fast and they feel like they're kind of always in beta or you're you, sometimes you got to pull in an alpha version to solve some problem. And so you have parts that are just, some of them are not ready quite yet. And you just know when you come back to that project in a year, you know, everything's going to be broken or like needing, needing <laughs> updates. And it's just like, whereas something like this, it sounds like, um, correct me if I'm wrong, it doesn't seem like it's it's going to move that fast on me and it's going to be kind of the same when I come back in a year, is that
3: right? Yeah, I mean, I don't know, not the WAX too philosophical, but HTMX really, it's the successor to Intercooler JS. And intercooler.js has been around since 2013. And when I did HTMX, I wanted to do two things. I wanted to clean up some of the mistakes that I made in intercooler.js and I wanted to remove the jQuery dependency so that you could just use HTMX without anything else. But it's not changed. I don't want to say it's done, done, but it's, you know, aside from bugs and maybe some small improvements anywhere, this is my propose, this is my proposal for web development. And there's not going to be an HTMX, you know, certainly it'll never be a 3.0. And I doubt there'll ever be a 2.0 because this is a, you know, I I think I got the APIs the way that I wanted to do it um, is reasonably close to correct. And uh, there's an extension. So some things that I I threw in, there's an extensions mechanism in HTMX. So if you have some need that it isn't meeting, you can create an extension and hook into the event cycles and do whatever you want to do and uh, there's an example if you go to the reference page there's uh, an extensions reference that shows some of the things you can do with that and so that takes some pressure off the library It's functional enough as it is to build a reasonable web app, but if you want to use, you know, like Morphdom or something like that, there are some plugins you can use around that. And then Hyperscript was another thing that I did Hyperscript, and Hyperscript is much more speculative than HTMX, but I did that to take the pressure off of adding features to HTMX, so it can be a stable way to build apps and it's backend agnostic. And hopefully it's just gonna work for, you know the foreseeable future with web apps. So definitely a more conservative approach in the sense that I'm not trying to, you know get things wrong and then rebuild everything and all that sort of stuff. But I think it addresses that concern that you're gonna have with some of this newer stuff where, you know, a year from now, goodness knows what it's gonna look like.
2: what's up party people this episode is brought to you by our friends at square for our listeners out there building applications with square if you haven't yet you need to check out their api explorer it's an interactive interface you can use to build View and send HTTP requests that call Square APIs. API Explorer lets you test your requests using actual sandbox or production resources inside your account, such as customers, orders, and catalog objects. You can use the API Explorer to quickly populate sandbox or production resources in your account. Then you can interact with those new resources inside the seller dashboard. For example, if you use API Explorer to create a customer in your production or sandbox environment, the customer is displayed in the production or sandbox seller dashboard. This tool is so powerful, and will likely become your best friend when interacting with, testing, or playing with your applications inside Square. Check the show notes for links to the docs, the API Explorer, and the developer account sign-up page, or head to developer.squareup.com slash explore slash square to jump right in. Again, check for links in the show notes, or head to developer.squareup.com slash explore slash square to play right now.
0: Carson, some of these things are better felt than telt. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, you're on a podcast. So you're going to have to tell yep. us. <laughs> sure. But you do have a good example, a search example, which at least gives the gist of, you know, what does it feel to, like to work with HTMX in, you know, a, a, on an actual feature? Can you walk us through verbally some of the way it works?
3: Yeah, sure. So, and I think this is it. So we're going to look at the active search example and you can go to htmx.org examples and click on the active search example there if you want to take a look at it but this is a great example because it shows interactions that normally you would feel like would require a fair amount of javascript to implement and in fact you end up being able to implement in a fairly clean manner just using attributes so it's an active search and what that means is you've got an input a text input and you're going to have some table of results, which filters down as you type into that. And many people would, you know, you could implement that client side. There's a million ways to skin this cat, um, but you could also implement it on the server side. Mm -hmm. HTMX is gonna do this on the server side. And so the way that it works is fairly simple. You have an input. And uh, that input is of type text and it has a placeholder that indicates to, uh, start typing here to search. The attributes, it has four uh, HTMX attributes on it. The first one being uh, HX post. And so it posts to slash search. So whenever uh, on an input, the default trigger for uh, an action is gonna be when it changes. We're actually going to modify that trigger here for reasons you'll see in a second. But uh, if that's all that you had uh, on this input, if you tabbed out of it and a change event fired, it would issue this request to search. The next attribute on it is hx trigger. And the hx trigger attribute has the following values in it key up, so it's going to trigger on key up, changed, which is a modifier to the key up argument. And that is telling HTMX only trigger uh, a request if the value has actually changed. So an arrow key, a right arrow or a left arrow key, for example, won't trigger a request because the value of the input hasn't changed. And then finally, there's a delay colon 500 milliseconds and that debounces the request so that you're not sending a request on every key up, which obviously is not a good idea. Right. <laughs> and so this is the mechanism in HTMX to debounce uh, events. And so after 500 milliseconds of not receiving a key up, it'll issue this request. The next attribute is we don't want to target the input. Obviously, we're not going to replace the input. Instead, we're going to replace a table that's just below the input. And so uh, we target uh, the search result. We actually target the body of the table via an ID. So the body of the table has the ID search results. And so our HX target uses the standard CSS selector syntax and says HX target hash search results to call, say, when you get stuff back, put it into there. And then finally, and this isn't necessary, but I like it for this example, there's an HX indicator attribute. And what HTMX will do, that again, has a CSS selector as a value for that attribute. And what HTMX will do is while a request is in flight, it will show that element in the DOM. So that that element is hidden by default. And during a request, HTMX will automatically add it, uh, will automatically show it. And so those four attributes, if you go down below that, um, you can start typing, just hit A or something like that. And you'll see it issues a search. A little indicator pops up while the search is in flight. And then lo and behold, below in the table, you're going to get all the results to match that. And this is all done on the server side. With a server-side rendered template, I have to admit, for the examples on the website, we're using a mock. We're using a Synons, uh mock server so that we don't actually have to have a real backend. Mm. But the code is written in the same manner as it would be. So everything else is hooked up as normal. And so this lets you do active search. Like you go to Google and you start typing, right? And then right. these search results just pop up automatically. So this is a good example of something that, you know, how many attributes, four attributes, you know, not very much HTML. Um, And this could add a lot of value to a lot of user interfaces that I interact with anyways, on the web. Anytime there's a table that doesn't offer, you know, sort of an active filter, uh, I think to myself, man, I wish these guys knew about HTMX. And maybe, you know, on the back end, all this would really involve is maybe factoring out the template for the body for the search results body of this table, and you'd be good to go. So you could add this functionality with very little code.
0: Yeah, on the back end, you could just detect if it's an ajax request and send only the search results mm-hmm. table rows, but if it's a regular get request, if you're using yeah. gets with query parameters, if you're using that search, well, it's an ajax H- post, so maybe that doesn't work, but you could have it so that the whole entire page with the query params would load with that table filtered yep. if you hit refresh, for example, and still have the, the value there.
3: Yeah, so there's another attribute, which is called uh, HX push. Is it HX push, push URL? I think it's HX push URL. And that'll do exactly what you're saying. It'll take the URL and it'll push it into the actual nav bar. And so then you'll get that behavior where it's exactly like if you had it as a form. And so if you're really trying to be disciplined about progressive enhancement, for example, that might be a good way to do it. And then you'd have copy and pasteable URLs in that case. So that's another attribute that you know would improve the improve it here. And then I should say that HTMX includes headers so that you can differentiate, oh, this was an HTMX request. You can even see what the request is targeting. You can do a lot of stuff like that uh, with the library. So we try and give you enough information to make these decisions on yeah. the side.
0: Let's take a, just a common edge case or common corner case even is just empty results. You will know, complicate this a little bit right. more. Yeah. A lot of times you get no search results. So this isn't even really an edge case. This is just like the empty case. How would you accomplish that? Would there be more attributes or would you just return different HTML?
3: Yeah, there a few different ways to skin that cat. If you can't jam it into the, uh, the body, uh, the T body, if that isn't acceptable. Um, You could trigger an event. So you could use a header to trigger an event and write a a JavaScript or Hyperscript handler to maybe show a message, like some sort of growl style message indicating that there were no results. There's also an out of band attribute that you can put on content that you stream back and that will tell HTMX, this content is not destined for the normal target. Instead, swap it in somewhere else in the DOM. And so if you had a place where you were showing uh, alerts, for example, you could use the OOB swap. Hold on, let me make sure I'm not HX swap OOB (laughs) attribute on content that you're returning from the server to say this needs to go somewhere else in the DOM. And so you could use that to show an alert of some sort indicating no results. Um, Another thing that you could do, another way to skin this cat is to replace the entire table. Right, Uh Um, wrap a div around the whole thing and then just include that alert at the top or render, don't even render a table, render some other HTML. And that's often one of the best approaches is just to expand your target until it's big enough. And that'll keep it simple. Maybe it's not as sexy a UI as a growl message or something like that, but if it's not worth the time and complexity uh, to invest in that UX, then that's a perfectly acceptable approach.
0: To me, this just screams for a server side integration, though, doesn't it? I mean, I know you want to be agnostic, but are you just going to provide plugins for all the popular frameworks or something? Because I wouldn't want to write the server side to do the detection of is this HTMLX. I'd like to have tooling on the server side just to make that dead simple. I'm, I'm assuming you could accomplish that with a rails plugin, a django plugin, a phoenix plugin, etc.
3: There's a django plugin for HTMX and I expect there to be more of those, but I really want to stay disciplined about HTMX not committing to a particular backend and I'm fine with that. Like, you know, there are people that know django or rails or the whatever the go web server is uh, really well. Even with, you know, something simple like Sinatra, you can do a lot with just raw htmx right you just yeah you have to look at headers and so forth but it's not crazy and so as long as your server side api is reasonable it's it's not too bad <laughs> but i do agree i think that you know the one thing that comes up a bunch is uh the x xrcfs cross site scripting tokens which every server side framework does it a little different And so for for something like that, yeah, you've got to, you're either going to have to figure out how to do it or you're going to have to, hopefully there'll be a plugin. So my hope is, you know, HTMX, I released it last summer, I think in uh, June. And so it's relatively new. Intercooler has been around for a long time, but, um, and so my hope is that as people pick it up, they'll develop these server side helpers that expose a lot of the functionality and whatever the native, you know, flavor of that backend is. Some people are also using it to build their own frameworks on top of it. Um, So for example, Ben Croker, has uh, something called Sprig, which is built for PHP and for a CMS, you know, Craft CMS on PHP. And it uses HTMX to deal with the front end, but then it feels much more like live wire, is my understanding. I have to admit, I'm not the PHP person. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's an example where someone is using HTMX to to achieve something uh, that with a much tighter integration with the server. But HTMX is never going to be that. <laughs> It's just trying to complete HTML. It's fixing the features that are missing in HTML, and that's it.
0: (laughs) Well, that leads to a question from the chat. Are the HX attributes extensible, or is HTMX extensible? If you feel like it's incomplete, I can add my own custom attributes that interact with it.
3: Yeah, it is. You can plug in, it's extensible. So there's an extension mechanism and you can add your own attributes if you want to. It gets a little dicier when you want to do things. For example, if you want to have your own swap mechanism, there's a hook for that. But when you start talking about the internals, I have to put those hooks in place. If that hook isn't there, you might be kind of out of luck. But the events, it does have an extensive event uh, system, you know, and so it gi- that gives you a lot of control over requests and so on and so forth. So you do have that ability to extend the library. And that was intentionally done so that I'm not tempted to heap in functionality, just keep, you know, dumping stuff in and get the, grow the library too large. I wanted to keep it pretty focused on this HTML driven server interactions concept.
0: The more I look at this, the more it makes you think about Tailwind and its rise mm-hmm. to popularity now because it's really tailwind is putting utility classes in your html you're writing more html less css right you have your classes and you're doing all your customizing of the look and feel right there by adding or removing certain classes and here you have basically that concept again with htmx and you're writing these additional attributes so you could probably get away with in a small application maybe you know pulling in tailwind pulling in htmx and writing only HTML, like one single page, one file, all HTML and come up with a a somewhat sophisticated web application without writing any CSS or JavaScript.
3: Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And I do think that there's a conceptual synergy between Tailwinds and HTMX and Hyperscript too which we'll talk about maybe a little bit later, they're all designed to be in the HTML. They're HTML centric in the sense that you work with HTML, you don't work with some other file. And one concept that I'm trying to push to codify that concept is this idea of locality of behavior. The idea here is that, and I said, I mentioned this earlier that I thought in jQuery, when you were dealing with jQuery applications, the separation of concerns, everyone knows about separation of concerns, right? Oh, we got to separate our concerns. Well, Tailwind CSS is not <laughs> separating those concerns. It's, it's kind of saying, no, we're not going to worry. We're going to just put the stuff there in the HTML. And uh, HTMX is similar in that sense, in that there isn't large a focus on separation of concerns, but rather there's an emphasis on what I am calling locality of behavior. And the idea here is that the behavior of a code unit should be as obvious as possible by looking only at that code unit. So if I have a button that does a thing, I don't want to have to look in 10 different places to know why the button looks like it looks or what it does. And that was a problem in jQuery derived. I think this gets at what you were talking about earlier, where it's yeah. like, what is going on in this app, right? Where you just you couldn't figure out what the heck this darn button was doing. And maybe some crazy selector in some JavaScript that lives goodness knows where was what was hooking up. The event handler. And so locality of behavior is the terminology that I'm trying to use to describe this idea. You put the behavior of the button on the button, not elsewhere. <laughs> and that violates separation of concerns. It also, um, to an extent, conflicts with uh, dry, with don't repeat yourself, because you may embed, you know, in jQuery anyways, you could hook up a behavior to multiple buttons by using some crazy selector, but that that was its own problem. Um, And so this is, I think, another design consideration that developers should keep in mind when they're designing their systems. Ideally, we want locality of behavior. We want to be able to look at a button and understand what the heck it does.
1: I like that a lot. It's like the opposite of uh, spooky action at a distance, right? Exactly, yeah, that's exactly. (laughs) You want to be able to look at like, look at the code and figure out what is going on and have that entire file kind of Mm self-contained. Yeah, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to repeat yourself, right? I mean, if you're doing something in like a bunch of different places, I don't know if HTMX supports some way of like including some way of reusability. Yeah,
3: yeah, that's what I'm wondering too. Is that all server side? You can in HTMX, most uh, attributes are inherited from a parent. And so, for example, if you have five buttons that all target the same div, you can move that HX target up to a parent div, and then they'll all inherit in the normal CSS way, Hmm. that behavior. And so that's the mechanism in HTMX for achieving sort of not repeating yourself, but that does violate dry, right? That can get very complex if you move it too far away from the buttons in question. And so you have to ask yourself, these are design principles. There's no hard and fast like rule we can apply here. We just have to use our own best judgment to determine, okay, this has gotten too crazy. I'm gonna move Mm -hmm. this a little closer um, so that this particular code unit is understandable. Yeah,
0: otherwise you put your abstractions on the server side and you render them, right? So like you have your button function that spits out the same HTML six times and you call it, but the logic yeah. is in a singular place. And so you can accomplish that with a server-side rendering. Yeah. When it comes to server-side versus pre-rendering, there are certain things that a server-side can't do very well, at least. Offline first, for example, working with other API clients, like now I have an iPhone app that also needs to use the same logic. Well, I've been yep. sending HTML down the wire this whole time. Now I have to build an API Uh, So multi-client is problematic. I think offline first is problematic. Some distribution, you know, if if your customers are in Japan and your server is in New York City, you've got just laws of physics fighting against you. So like you you said at the top, this is not the solution for every problem. But when it comes to those kind of things, is the answer just go with a Next.js or with a pre-rendering kind of a thing?
3: Yeah, I would say, and I think it's important, and a lot of people get confused, and maybe we can move into talking about REST and hadios from this point. A lot of people, when I say, oh, just use HTML, they think, oh, now my mobile client has to parse HTML. Are you a lunatic? And, and well, yes, I'm a lunatic, but that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> you know, those are two separate things to consider here. And uh, I'm not saying that at all. I think you should have two separate, for most apps, of course, you know, and it just depends, of course, you should have two separate uh, APIs. You should have a JSON API which should not be RESTful, by the way. And we'll talk about why that is. It shouldn't be RESTful, you should have a JSON API. And then you should have your web app. And maybe that web app on the back end even uses the REST API internally, I don't know. Like, typically I would use just access the database because that's going to be faster. But those two need to be decoupled from one another, in my opinion. And the reason for that, and this is to get into the conversation about REST, is REST has kind of had its ups and downs in uh, the web development world. Uh, people now, they still use the term REST, but they don't really mean it <laughs> when they say it. And uh, I think it's just come to mean any JSON API. So uh, is uh, what's the, the query language, the Facebook? GraphQL. Uh, non- GraphQL, thank you. I always confuse that with jQuery. Um, that's not RESTful.
1: <laughs> no. If
3: you're creating an endpoint with GraphQL, you're moving way away from the original RESTful uh, concept. And, and that, that's explicit. I think that yeah. people understand that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the right thing for that style of API. And the reason for that is that REST and Hadios, that was a description of the original web model. That was not a, a prescriptive, you have to do things this way. It became that later on, but it was originally a description of the way the web worked in web 1.0 dumb web navigation. And for historical reasons, that became part of the discussion when XML was used for, the, for APIs. People, I'm old enough to remember when people used XML for APIs, you know, like in JavaScript, believe it or not, like Ajax, believe it or not, <laughs> has XML in it, right? Right. So when they were designing these XML APIs, they had in their mind this old the the, inter- the normal interaction and they adopted a lot of the terminology around it. And so there are these arguments about whether or not an API was rest or restful or not and there's this hierarchy of restfulness and so on and so forth. And that was all somewhat plausible when you were using XML rather than HTML. But once we flipped to JSON, JSON is not a hypertext. It's not a hypermedia. Once we made that flip, my opinion is that the conversation became somewhat ridiculous and a little bit of cargo culty. Because once you've made that move to JSON, where you're in a world where there is no markup, there's no hypertext here. Now you're in a world that is much more like the old thick clients, and the APIs that you're working with, they're data APIs and you want your data API to be as powerful as like the data API we have to our databases, right? You want that same functionality. Um, You don't want to be doing what the web did. (laughs) The web was RESTful and you don't want that anymore. My take on this is that you need to separate those two things from one another and the JSON API is just going to have a very different behavior uh, and different characteristics than your web API than the web apps interaction with a a properly functioning RESTful backend. So REST makes sense when you think about interactions with HTMX a ton because hypertext is the application. There is the engine of application state. But when you're interacting with JSON, that's just no longer true. And so you should drop that baggage. The industry has been staggering towards that for the last five or six years.
0: Hmm. So in the typical case of a let's just call it a technology startup where they're going to yeah. have a web app and they're going to have an, a, a mobile app, which is iOS and Android or whatever. Yep. And then maybe they'll have, maybe they're real hip, so they'll have a command line interface. Yep, like, sure. You say that's two APIs. There's a web API and there's like a yep. app API. And they have, and that versus I have one API and it serves a web app client, it serves an iPhone client, it serves an Android client. Yep because they're fundamentally different things?
3: They have fundamentally different technical characteristics. Your web API is needly. You need to get little things right, right? Like you have got active search here. You've got to get all these little interactions right. Maybe they do various things. Maybe there's an out of bounds swap that happens, whatever it is. There's a lot of churn associated with your web app as you build it out. And if that churn goes through your uh, API then it's brutal and that's why we've moved as an industry towards these more generalized query front end query languages because that was such a nightmare so when they tried to do restful APIs with good you know restful endpoints they just they you know you'd be on version 35 of your API before you even shipped 1.0 of the web app because you've gone through so much churn. And your web app to be a good experience for the user needs that. It needs very specific, highly tuned queries that are best done on the server side with SQL or whatever, some caching, like whatever it is. And so that is a different use case than, oh, I'm giving this API out to the general world. It's gonna be rate limited right? Because the general world does crazy stuff and maybe it needs to be very general. So it doesn't change very much. And that is fine, but that's a different technical use case very often. So Rails early on, you could ask for endpoints, neither HTML or JSON, and it just never went anywhere. Like it just, it didn't produce good APIs. And so I don't want to say that was a mistake because we were all trying to figure it out, but it just didn't work out that well. And I think that again, is evidence of this distinction, like your web app needs a small, not necessarily super small, but really specific and highly tuned API to perform well. And then your general API that goes out to your your clients, maybe your command line, maybe to your Mm -hmm. mobile apps, whatever it is, that just has a different set of technical requirements.
2: What up, party people? If you want to know what's happening with your code, track errors and monitor your app's performance with Sentry. Build better software faster with Sentry's application monitoring platform. Diagnose, fix, and optimize the performance of your code. Cut your time on error resolution from hours to minutes. It works with any language and integrates with dozens of services. Over 1 million developers and 68,000 organizations already use Sentry. And best of all, GS Party listeners new to Sentry get the team plan for free for three months. Head to Sentry.io to get started and use the code PARTY TIME when you sign up. Again, Sentry.io and use the code PARTY TIME because hey, it's party time, y'all.
0: All right, Carson, you have mentioned Hyperscript a few times, but we haven't hit the nail on right. the head. What does Hyperscript tell us about it?
3: <laughs> HTMX is solid. <laughs> That's, I think, is the right thing. Okay. And Hyperscript, <laughs> in contrast, is much more spec. little mushy. It's speculative. Okay. It's a much more speculative project. I'm a programming languages person, uh, so it's always dangerous when <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'll solve this with a programming language. It's turning out pretty well. And uh, the two projects are related to one another. They're designed to work well together, but they're not required. So if you, if you just want to use HTMX and vanilla JS or whatever, that's fine. A lot of people use Alpine JS with HTMX and that's fine. But Hyperscript is an embedded programming language. It's a front end programming language and it's designed like HTML and like Tailwinds to be embedded directly in HTML. And so. You write your code, you write event handlers directly in HTML. And you do that with the underscore attribute by default. That's the one that we use. And I took that idea from, I don't know if you remember, underscore JS? I do. Yeah, underscore JS. I thought that was pretty clever. Jeremy
0: Ashkin-Nass replaced by Lodash over time. Not replaced, but... Usurped, I guess, is the right word.
3: Yeah, right. But I thought it was really clever that he took underscore because that's a valid identifier. Mm -hmm. And it's the shortest, like, most unobtrusive identifier available. And I looked around and said, well, I'll just take the underscore attribute. And this will be the underscore attribute JS of, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, if you have a button, for example, and you want to add some code to it, you say underscore. And then the syntax of Hyperscript is pretty unique. It's pretty unique. I'm not going to lie. It's based on uh, an older scripting language called HyperTalk. So how many people here have heard of HyperTalk?
0: <laughs> I've heard of HyperCard. Are they related?
3: Yeah, they are related. Okay. There you go. we got someone who's heard of HyperCard.
0: Yeah, but I don't really know what it is. I know like a lot of people who've been around.
3: You would have a gray beard if you yes. grew it out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> or at least I listen to a lot of graybeards. I think they speak very highly of HyperCard, but it was that in the 80s or mm-hmm. when was that?
3: Yeah, HyperCard was late 80s and early 90s. And it was a, a sort of a predecessor to HTML and it was available on the Mac. And recently I've just gone on a binge of buying old HyperCard and HyperTalk books. HyperTalk was the scripting language for HyperCard. And you can search around there. I think there's hypercard.org, which has an old reference. It's cool, old vintage stuff to take a look at. So there were some features that were in Intercooler. I didn't want to make part of the core of HTMX, but I still wanted to have a story for them. And uh, I thought to myself, well, it's always fun to make a programming language. Let's do that. And uh, one of the things that I noted was that a lot of the attributes that I was removing from Intercooler JS were event related. And so I thought to myself, self, we need an event-oriented programming language. Um, And there aren't a lot of those. But I remember when I was a young man (laughs) doing work in HyperCard, and there was a really cool programming language called HyperTalk that had event handlers baked into it and a really nice way to work with events. And so I started a programming language based on that concept. And you can check it out at uh, hyperscript.org. and. The way it works effectively is, uh, you know, if you've got a button and you want to do something, you say underscore as an attribute. You say underscore equals, and then embed a string. You can say on click or on whatever do something and that something is going to be specified typically in a very English like language. So HyperTalk had this natural language style to it. And uh, I'm I'm copying that for uh, for Hyperscript. And so uh, if you go to the the docs page, the first example says on click put I was clicked into me. (laughs) And uh, that's a very HyperTalk esque thing to say. And what that would do is when you click that button, it'll put the string, I was clicked into this, Mm -hmm. the button, me means this effectively, um, if you're used to JavaScript. And so there's a working example there that you can click on. So what's the advantage of this versus just doing an on click handler and writing a little bit of JavaScript here, right? That's the first thing you're going to say. Well, the advantage here is that this syntax can handle any type of event. So uh, HTMX fires a bunch of different events in different parts of the lifecycle of requests and replacements and so forth. Unfortunately, there's not a general way to hook up a handler directly on a button or on a div or whatever to handle those events. So the hyperscript syntax is more general in that you can handle not only the canonical DOM events but you can also handle events triggered by other libraries htmx uh, if you have a drag and drop library that fires events and so or whatever you can embed all that directly in your html without having to put them in either you know jquery event handlers somewhere else or in a vanilla JS block yeah. somewhere where you add the event handler somehow. So it's all embedded directly in it. So it once again, satisfies that locality of behavior concept that we were talking about earlier, yeah. where you can look at this button and know what it's doing. <laughs> in a way that uh, you can't if you know you just use the standard technologies that are available to you.
0: I think this is really cool. It makes me want to show it to my kids. This is the kind of thing where, and I've taught like the foundations of web development to, to young people and even to some older people. And it's like the HTML, easy, right? The CSS, eh, a little bit harder, but we get it. you know. And then it's like JavaScript, boom, punch you in the face, you know? Right. And I would use jQuery to kind of ease that tension yep. a little bit because they had already learned their CSS selectors. So now we can use those to like grab an element and then, you know, fade out is a pretty easy thing to to think about. But this is even more local and more human readable and kind of like uh, maybe even intuitive to say something like on click, add, fade me, then wait 200 milliseconds, then remove me. That's the kind of way you think about it there, right?
3: Yeah. And in fact, you could do exactly what you just said. You could say on click transition my opacity to zero. So you could just write that, that's valid, Hyperscript, and that'd do exactly what you're talking about. It would transition the current element's opacity to zero. There's a bunch of commands and so forth that you can do in it. It's based heavily, but in some ways loosely on uh, HyperTalk, influenced obviously by JavaScript as well, but it has some interesting syntactic features. For example, you can use CSS literals directly. So you can say, for example, on click, add, .foo to me, and that'll add the foo class to the current element. And so the dot .foo is a literal value in the language that allows you to refer to that class directly without having to use strings or whatever. There's a bunch of literals that are available for you to use in the language. So it's trying to be very front-end focused, very DOM friendly, as well as very event friendly. And uh, so, you know, you can do all sorts of crazy stuff in it. <laughs> and there's one feature that I want to talk about. You want to get into it right now. So this is all, you know, kind of neat. It's cute little toy language. But there is one kind of really neat trick in the language that we could talk about.
0: On the last episode, I was lamenting to Nick about having to write some Apple script because that language is verbose and ridiculous. And <laughs> there's a hint of that here. Are they both, is HyperTalk yep. potentially... Also, an inspiration for AppleScript, but AppleScript is more verbose and this makes more sense. But I, I can say, the then do this, then that, and tell like, yeah, Apple AppleScript, you so like tell application keynote to focus itself yeah. and then do this. And then there's some of that there. I wonder if they have
3: similar roots, yeah. Okay, they're both derived from HyperTalk, that's exactly right. And it can, HyperScript just like HyperTalk and like AppleTalk, can get out of hand if you're trying to do too much with it. (laughs) So this is a scripting language. This is for glue code and for gluing stuff together with events. It's not for creating a massive, you don't want a massive code base of this. That's not the idea here. The idea is to be able to capture small Mm -hmm. events and maybe forward them or do simple interactions with the DOM. Now, what you do once, you know, once you've been given this power is your own, (laughs) you you know, you need to, that's between you and your God. The idea here is not to write a ton of (laughs) hyperscript. It's when necessary to write a bit of scripting in a place that's obvious.
1: Once again, following that concept. So one thing that comes to mind whenever I see like programming languages like this that are really similar to English, Mm -hmm. natural language, natural language, and I haven't really worked in them for two Too long, so maybe maybe this is just a silly question, but like because it's so similar to English, do they try to go off and just write things that the language doesn't understand? If it's like an English sentence, I might just you know start I don't know adding other words that seem like yeah "Yeah, the computer understands what I want. Why can't I say these other words that uh, should be obvious? (laughs) Yeah. How do you give them feedback on on that and um, like how much of a problem is that?
3: Well, um, I'll tell you in about a year (laughs) when people started using the language more extensively. I think that's definitely an issue, but I would say that. Hyperscript favors read time over write time. And so it's not intended to be necessarily trivial to write this code. What it is intended to be is trivial to read it. So once it's written, it should be very clear what it does. And the idea there is to favor read time over write time because read time is you know, where the vast majority of code is read many more times than it is written. So that's a theory. This is a little bit of a meme language. <laughs> So I don't want to say that that's not a problem at all. Uh, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. There are people who are very passionate about HyperTalk. So my hope is that there was a kernel there that uh, we can capture with this language. And once again, I'll just kind of hem and haw and say, oh, read time <laughs> when, this, when this problem comes up. But if I can, is it, do you mind if I spend a little bit of time talking about my the, the cool feature of Hyperscript?
0: Please do, because you teased it, and it would be remiss of us not to let you talk about it now.
3: Okay. So uh, one thing that's really interesting about HyperTalk is that it is what I am calling async transparent. Okay. And what that means is that you can write and mix synchronous and asynchronous code together and not have to do any sort of annotations or work with callbacks in any way. And so if you go to the docs page and you click on that first button, what you'll notice is that after two seconds, it reverts back Mm -hmm. to click me. It changes its text and then it reverts back to click me. And the way that that's happening, if you scroll down just a little bit further is that there's actually a little bit more code in there. And so what what the Hyperscript actually says is on click, put I was clicked into me and then wait two seconds and then put click me into me. And so that code, what that code does is it puts the string I was clicked into me, and then it waits two seconds. And uh, then after two seconds have uh, passed, uh, it puts click me back into the button. So it reverts to its original state. And the wait two seconds command, uh, that's part, that's a, you can wait in HyperScript. Um, You can throw a wait wherever you want. And that's the equivalent of in JavaScript, what we're all used to, a set timeout, right? Where you would call set timeout. In 2000, whatever, and do something after the fact. And in Hyperscript, you can do that and it will just work. So the Hyperscript runtime figures out whether or not a particular statement or even expression without getting too technical is asynchronous and it will delay the execution at a high level of whatever statements depend on that until that expression or statement completes. And so you can mix both synchronous and asynchronous code together you can have an asynchronous function and call it as long as it returns a promise then that promise will be resolved before hyperscript continues and so the the internal runtime of hyperscript resolves promises and then also this is without getting too deep also creates promises depending on what your stuff does (laughs) so you're able to just write code that may be synchronous or asynchronous in the normal linear fashion without doing any sort of annotations, without changing Bob Nystrom, the dark guy, munificent Bob, I believe is his handle on Twitter, what he would call the color of the function. So to him, I think he calls asynchronous functions red functions and synchronous functions blue functions. Well, Hyperscript collapses the difference between those two. And so you don't have to think about whether or not your code is synchronous or asynchronous. And if you scroll just a bit further down, you'll find an example that changes the string that is put into the button to a fetch. So this all seems kind of dumb, like, oh great, you can wait two seconds, who cares? Well, if you scroll a little bit further down, you'll see an example where we issue a fetch and that's an actual Ajax or a fetch request to the server, which is asynchronous. Nonetheless, we can, treat that as if it was a synchronous call in our Hyperscript. So we can write Hyperscript that says on click, fetch the click message, put the result into me result. Now um, we can talk about that later, wait two seconds, and then put click back into me. And so you can introduce asynchronous code to your event handler without having to do any craziness, without any callbacks, without any promises, explicit promises, and without any annotations. And so this I think is the really cool technical aspect of Hyperscript. This is what I think differentiates it from a lot of other approaches. Like, you know, AlpineJS is, I think, a great piece of software. But this, in my mind, is one of the big differentiators between Hyperscript and AlpineJS, for example. Pretty crazy,
1: huh? <laughs> it is. Yeah. is one way to think about it. Like you're kind of automatically putting in a wait keyword in front of every function call. And then so if that yeah, it's, if it happens to be async, you'll just automatically await it for the user without them having to like think about oh should I do I have to put a wait here or not?
3: Yeah, that's one way to think about it. Um, it's promises under the code. You can I can walk you through the code <laughs> if you're interested at some point. It's a little bonkers, <laughs> but it works. <laughs> um, but yeah, you could think of that as like everything's awaited, <laughs> and you know the way I would say it is all the promises are resolved you know, before you evaluate something, before you execute a given command and move on to the next one. There's not a spin loop or something like that. We're using the the JavaScript promises API to make all that work. And the internals of Hyperscript had to get turned inside out to make that all work, but it does. It's a miracle of miracles it works. And uh, so it lets you write very clean, in my mind, very clean asynchronous code that is very close
1: to what, you know, beginners who don't necessarily want to think about asynchronicity um, would want to write. What's the downside of this approach? Maybe this is the way JavaScript should work. Like if, if we just magically um, automatically awaited every function call, then like what would be the downside <laughs> of that? But, yeah. I mean, one, one thing I, I, I'm thinking off the top of my head is, does that mean that you can't launch two things in parallel? Like I, you can't create two promises and then await like both of them? Because as soon as you do one, it'll immediately await that one. And then it'll do the next one and await that one.
3: Yeah. So if you want to do that style of programming, there's a keyword. And the one asynchronous keyword uh, is an async prefix where you can say on a command, this command is asynchronous. So don't block on it. Just evaluate it, but don't block on it. And so there isn't right now in Hyperscript a good way to say, here are three things that I want done in parallel. And await on all of them, but wait till all of them are complete, right? And that's something that you can do with the promises API. So Hyperscript is not, that's not just not a use case that has been designed for yet in the language. But that's not the vast majority of usages of promises, right? Usually we're, calling fetch or using Axios or whatever to get some Mm -hmm. data, whatever it is. And uh, similarly, if you have events that are coming in, so I I add a class to an element and now I want to wait until the transition is complete, right? That's an asynchronous situation. And so in Hyperscript, you can say, add a class to me, and then you can say, settle, (laughs) settle me and that will listen for uh, the transition to complete. And that's an asynchronous callback. And when it completes, then the hyperscript continues. And so this lets you do that style of programming. And actually, if you're willing to really get nerdy about it, there's a a link to uh, event-driven control flow, Eh, jamming that in the chat, which shows that this is like pretty intense hyperscript. But uh, there's a loop, <laughs> this is crazy. I don't even know if this is worth talking about, but there's a loop <laughs> that will loop until an event is received. You have two buttons, basically, you paint a picture. If two buttons, you click on one and it'll start pulsing. It'll start adding and removing a class that makes it basically pulse red. There's another button that'll send an event to that button saying, hey, stop pulsing. And the cool thing about this, the really interesting thing about this is that the button that is pulsing will complete a pulse before it stops because the repeat loop in the event handler on it completes a full loop before it checks if the Mm -hmm. event has been received. And so this is an example of event-driven control flow that I think can enable some pretty interesting stuff. There's some really cool examples. They're not all up yet, but there's some really cool examples around this. We have event-driven control flow, which is enabled by this uh, async agnostic runtime. Like it all just kind of falls out of it. Pretty interesting stuff. And what's a little unnerving about this is if you click the stop from pulsing button and the button has just begun to pulse, it won't stop until it finishes that pulse. But that addresses a problem that you'll often see in web apps where something will finish and then immediately some animation or whatever, like just halts, right? Mm It just, (laughs) and uh, so you get like an immediate swap or just this kind of flash of, just doesn't feel right. Well, you know, with Hyperscript and this async runtime you can let that animation complete and then uh, go on smoothly.
0: Then stop it, yeah.
3: Pretty intense, a little intense, sorry guys. I'm excited. That's all right. about it.
0: Fascinating stuff. <laughs>
1: I'm very excited about this. I like Intense. This is really cool. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, this has been an awesome episode. I like how we have kind of the practical, pragmatic approach to building web applications with HTMX. And then we have the experimental, intense, uh, intellectual side and wacky, <laughs> wacky side with Hyperscript. So there you have, listener, both yeah. things to check out. Of course, everything Carson has referenced will be in your show notes so definitely click through and check out all things carson thanks so much for coming on the show and talking to us about uh, all these concepts and what you're up to it's cool stuff
3: yeah thank you i appreciate you guys i know this is a little outside the normal bounds of javascript podcast so thanks for listening
1: you bet (laughs) super cool yeah thanks for coming in and showing all this to us yeah no problem
0: all right thanks for listening everybody we'll talk to you next time Thank you for listening we appreciate your time and your attention have you heard of changelog weekly it's our editorialized take on this week in software development delivered each and every sunday to your email inbox check it out at changelog.com weekly we put a lot of love into it js party is produced by me jared santo with music by the mysterious breakmaster cylinder we are brought to you by awesome sponsors. Special thanks to Fastly, Linode, and LaunchDarkly for their support. Next up on the pod, Brian Douglas from GitHub joins Nick and KBall to discuss hardware and software setups to make your development life easier. Stay tuned for that one. It's gonna be hitting your podcast feed next week.